Good morning. My name is Pastor Ruth, and I'm delighted to be with you this Labor Day weekend. I hope you've had a chance to get outside, even between the raindrops. Several years ago, I was biking the Burt Gilman, and it was my first time going through Ballard. And this is a while ago, and the trail used to literally end at the Fred Meyer in Ballard. And it just dumped you out onto this busy intersection with... uh, railroad tracks, as it happens, <laughs> and it didn't end well. <laughs> so, <laughs> because it was not clear. There was, it said the trail ended, but it didn't tell you where to go. It didn't say, should I stop? It didn't say, should I go through the intersection? It didn't say, should I merge with traffic? And I crashed. Luckily, just a few stitches, nothing broken, but it was not a pleasant experience. When I read the words of Moses this week, choose life, my first thought was, what does that mean? How do I do that? Where where is that path? What's the right direction? How will I know if I'm headed in the direction of choosing life? We're kind of at the end of our series. I think there's a week or two more of the life of Moses. And the people of Israel are at a dangerous an important intersection, a crossroads. But they've been to this intersection before, 40 years ago. It was a previous generation of people who were at this intersection, poised to enter the the promised land. And like God, uh, like many of us who have had children who have failed to launch, God had children who failed to launch. Israel didn't move into the promised land. Instead, they moved back into the basement, which for them was the desert. They went back and they did it all over again. And nothing personal to my children who live in the basement. (laughs) It's, It's not a failure. It's just a temporary time. But Moses' leadership is coming to an end here. And there's a real question on his mind, and that is, will Israel's relationship with God survive when Moses is out of the picture. I don't know if you know this, but a third of our kids who grow up in church with two parents going to church take a break from church at that critical intersection between 17 and 19. A third of our kids take a break. They take a break. Now, lots of them do come back, but some don't come back. It's kind of a critical time in life And that's the question for this this new generation of God's people as they stand at the Jordan River. Will this generation, raised in the desert, have a life-sustaining relationship with God? And we're covering a huge passage today, all the way from chapter 27 till 30. We probably could have just spent the entire 30 minutes reading all of those words. If you want more, please go ahead and do that. But Moses wants to be certain that God's people are headed towards life, towards a good life. And so he's going to give them some clear markers, some clear path direction that is instructive for us too in knowing that we are on the path, the good life path, the safe path with God. And we're going to talk about four of those markers today for choosing the good life. One is a good identity. The second is a good map. The third is a good memory, and the fourth is a good hope. So let's pray as we begin. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for markers on our path that give us direction 
that show us the way to safety and health and flourishing life. We want to flourish in life with you. I pray that your words today would be enlivened by your spirit to bring life, to breathe life into your people, as it did 1,400 years before Christ. We pray, Lord, that those words would again be used to breathe life in Christ's name. Amen. So to set the stage for Deuteronomy 27, Moses and the children of Israel are asking this second generation who, have not, who did not experience leaving Egypt to renew that covenant with God, and it's, it's kind of a big deal. Deuteronomy 27, 9 and 10 says, Then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel, saying, Keep silence and hear, O Israel. This very day you have become the people of the Lord your God. Therefore, obey the Lord your God, observing his commandments and his statutes that I am commanding you today. Well, we've been studying the people of God for a while. Weren't they already the people of God? Weren't they the people of God when they were enslaved in Egypt? It seems to me that Moses was speaking on behalf of God when he said, let my people go. So God had already claimed them as his people. So what does it mean here? This very day you have become the people of God. In chapter 27, Moses is giving them instructions for what they're supposed to do when they get across the river, but they haven't yet crossed the river. They haven't yet obeyed uh, the commandments that are given in these chapters or his instructions, but God wants to assure them before they even enter the land about their identity. They are already God's people. They belong to Yahweh. Their identity as God's people is secure. And they are supposed to be quiet, to be still, maybe to reflect on that exact idea. This day you've become the people of the Lord your God. And that phrase, that's the only time it's ever found in Scripture, the people of the Lord your God. Lord your God is kind of an overstatement. It, it's like when my daughter calls and I don't recognize her voice and she says, Shannon, Shannon, your daughter. You know, it's kind of an over. Emphasis and Lord is, is a bad English translation in my, my view because we think of it as meaning a position. Lord, when it's all in caps in your English Bible, is the translation of the personal name of God to his people Israel, Jehovah or Yahweh. So it's a very intimate thing for him to say, the Lord your God the people of the Lord your God. The phrase Lord your God happens hundreds of times in the Old Testament. Half of them are in Deuteronomy. It's like he really is trying to get them to see that this is a relationship thing. When I was a little girl, I knew it was kind of a big deal that my dad was a doctor. I liked when people would say, I guess that's a question we used to ask kids. I don't know if we ask kids that anymore. What does your dad do? My dad's a doctor. And I remember at six, I learned to say and spell the word psychiatrist. And that got even more of a reaction. So I love to tell people my... I did, had no idea what it meant. I had no idea what it was. But I knew that there was something... There, I had some sense of being special because my dad was a psychiatrist. How would you name your identity? Where does your identity come from? I think a lot of us get our identity from what we do, what we produce. I'm a lawyer. I'm a teacher. I'm a student. That's what I do. 
Sometimes our identity comes mostly in who we're in relationship with. I'm a mother. I'm divorced. I'm an orphan. Those are powerful identities to hold. Sometimes it's through experience. We identify as being a Bruin or a Husky or I'm a foodie or I'm a cancer survivor. But I'd like you to just think a bit this morning about your identity. And our identities certainly can change. There is, in fact, only one identity that will last from our first breath to our last breath, and that is that we are the beloved children of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called children of God. That's who we really are. That's who we really are. That's who you really are. You are the beloved child of God. I want us to say it together. I'm the beloved child of God. Let's say it. I am the beloved child of God. Look at someone you came with today and say, you are the beloved child of God. You are the beloved child of God. That's an identity that will stand up. That's an identity that will stand up during those periods when you won't be producing anything. That's an identity that stands even when relationships are broken or shaken. That's an identity that, that stands where we don't need experience. You are the beloved child of God, even with a broken heart, a broken mind, a broken body. You are the beloved child of God. Ephesians 2.10 says, You are God's masterpiece, God's work of art, created in Christ Jesus, spiritually transformed, ready to be used for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them, living the good life which he prearranged and made ready for us. The path of living the good life is marked by choosing to live our good identity, our identity as God's beloved children. And the second marker on the road of a good life is a good map. Now, how many of you know what a map is? There used to be these paper things that had roads on it, and you had to, I, with my dad, you had to, it was like origami. You had to carefully fold it back exactly how it had been folded before. Um, and most of us, uh, you know, I'm sure there's kids who've never seen a map now because of GPS on our phones. Um, I love to use Waze because of traffic. Waze gives me more than the roads on the map. It tells me that there's the Blue Angels traffic jam in Seattle, or it tells me that Greenwood's being paved, and it's a nightmare to avoid it. And God's map is really more informative than our old-fashioned maps. It's more like Waze because it not only tells us the roads available, where are the roads of life, the roads of flourishing, the roads of safety, but it also warns us. It's a map that warns us about dangers and places we can get stuck. Let's read a little bit from chapter 28. If you will only obey the Lord your God by diligently observing all his commandments that I am commanding you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. And then the end of the chapter. Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity, the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. 
You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning you'll say, if only it were evening, and in the evening you'll say, if only it were morning. If you read this whole section of blessings and cursings, there's a, there's a long list of them, a long list of blessings and cursings, but I picked those out because those sound so familiar to me. Anxious, discontent, people wishing they were always somewhere else doing something else than what they are doing. The Israelites are supposed to act the, this covenant out, and they're going to stand on these two mountains, which are going to magically appear here. This is a picture of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And so six tribes would be on one hill and six tribes on the other hill, and the Levites were going to stand in the middle and read this, li this list of behaviors and that were blessed if you do this and cursed if you do that. And at the end of it, the people's participation was to say amen. They were to affirm that what God was saying was true. And it sounds kind of primitive to our ears whenever we read the Old Testament and it says, if you obey or because you did not obey, it's so conditional. If you do this, you're blessed. If you do this, you're cursed. And then we say, do people really get what they deserve in life? Do good people really always get blessed? Do bad people always do poorly and get cursed? Well, that's a topic for an entire book, but I'm just going to give you a few thoughts as we're looking at the law of God. And the first one that I want to mention is that we're going back way, 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 way back, 1400 B.C., and God's laws to the Jews were actually an amazing, giant step forward in the history of law. Thomas Cahill wrote a book called The Gift of the Jews, and he talks about the Jewish laws. He says they represent an overall humanizing of the common law of the Middle East, Middle East and he names two ways that the Jewish law was radically different than anything else in the, in the world at that time. One was the presumption that all people, even slaves, are human and that all human lives are sacred. That was a radically new idea. The next was the constant bias that is in favor not of the powerful and their possessions, but of the powerless and their poverty. Those two ideas were a radical change in the history of ancient law. In fact, he says in the history of the whole history of law, that the law would be on the side of the poor and powerless rather than those who owned stuff and the powerful, and the idea that all human life is sacred. Jewish law, the scripture tells us, is kind of like a tutor that got us ready for school. It introduced way, way, way back some new ideas. And unfortunately, the spirit and the heart of God's law and his intention was never really lived out by the Jews. They never really did it. They got caught up in the do good and you personally will get blessed, do bad and you personally will get cursed. Um, they got caught in that so that it became, as it, I think it is sort of the cultural norm in our country, that instead of saying those things are true, it actually says successful people must be good and those who suffer must have deserved it. I think that's a generally held cultural belief that many, many people in our country have. And Jesus had to deal with that same warped idea 
In John 9, he's confronted, he's, his disciples bring him a man who was born blind, and his disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? And Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. God has never been interested in the scrupulous observance of a bunch of rules. That has never been the heart of what God intended as he gave us this map of law, this map that points towards flourishing life, that points towards live this way and things will go better for you. Jesus summarizes, in fact, God's law in Matthew 22 in what I call the law of love. Love God and love others. That's the heart of the map. That's the heart of how God wants to point us towards life, is love God and love others. That will lead to a good life. We will still suffer. We suffer sometimes the consequences of our own bad choices, for sure. We, just, we suffer often for the consequences of other people's bad choices that splash onto our life in all kinds of painful ways. We suffer in a world where Rain and sunshine land on the good and the bad, the, old, the New Testament says. But we do not suffer under a curse. Galatians 3.13 makes very clear that Jesus is the one who suffered the curse. He took on the curse of our broken <clears throat> relationship with God. We do not suffer under the curse. Your sin and your brokenness, what you have done, where you have been, is not who you are. One reason that we become so uncomfortable living in a place of brokenness and sin is that's not who we were created to be. That's not who we are in Christ. Ari Nowen wrote this, which I think is true for many of us. Many people don't think they are loved or held safe, and so when suffering comes, they see it as an affirmation of their worthlessness. The great question of ministry and the spiritual life is to learn to live our brokenness under the blessing, not under the curse. So when we suffer, we have a choice to live our suffering knowing our belovedness to God, living it under the blessing of God rather than living it as though we are cursed. God's map, God's laws do point to life, to a flourishing life. And living into that new identity of beloved child of God, we get to choose a map. The map that we are to choose is Christ. He is the map. We apprentice ourselves to Jesus. We apprentice ourselves, and I like that word from Dallas Willard because it means more than I learn or I assent with my mind. It means I do. When you're an apprentice electrician, you do electrical work. That's how you learn. I mean, I know you have to study too, but you do it. And that's the truth of the Christian life is, in fact, the final curse in Deuteronomy was cursed if you don't do all of these things in the law. So we apprentice ourselves to the humility of Christ, to the joy of Christ, to the generosity of Christ, to the truth of Christ, to the gratitude and peaceful way that Christ lived. And God will change our name and our identity from wounded and outcast, and give us that new name of confidence, joyfulness, friend of God. The good life path is marked by choosing to have and to use 
the good life, the good map. Jesus is that map. He showed us how to live the law of love. He's, he's the only example of a human being who fully lived the law of love. And it meant he broke some other rules. It meant he didn't do all of the things that the religious people of his day thought he should do. But he lived fully the law of love. Let's move on to chapter 29. The next marker for choosing the path that leads to life is to hold on to our memory of God. Chapter 29, Moses says, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord did in Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to all his land. With your own eyes you saw these great trials, these signs and great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a mind that understands or eyes that see or ears that hear. Yet the Lord says, During the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, your clothes did not wear out, nor did the sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord your God. God's people had experienced a wealth of miracles. They had experienced the deliverance from Egypt. They'd seen all the signs of what had happened in order for for Pharaoh first to let them go and then Pharaoh to be defeated so that they were free. They'd seen all this provision for an entire generation. Clothes didn't wear out. Shoes didn't wear out. Manna was provided. They had seen the provision of God, and yet they couldn't connect the dots. They didn't get it, that God is provider and God is protector. They didn't remember in a way that provided hope and joy and faith in the battles of today. I hear that all the time in my own voice and in the complaints of other people, the, the inability to remember with, with enough force that it brings hope to today. I, uh, <clears throat> I heard a story from 2008. I had a good friend, if everyone remembers, big downturn, 2008. So I have a friend who retired, her husband retired in October of 2008, and they had gone away for a week, a week vacation with friends who were also retiring, and it was the week. In the time that they were away celebrating their retirement, their stock portfolio, their retirement money went down by half. That's not a great celebration. <laughs> it was on the way to ruining the weekend, and the other couple, the woman in particular, was completely panicked and was glued to the TV and glued to the news. And I will never forget my friend's words to her husband. She said, Honey, we've been poor, and we can be poor again because God is for us. We've been poor, and we can be poor again because God is for us. That's a good memory. She had a firm grip on her memory of God's care for her family in the past, and that memory connected her to a solid expectation for the present and the future. Do you have that kind of memory? Sometimes I don't have a very good memory, and in fact, since I came to Bethany, I've been keeping a little journal where I see things happen that are so not of my control, where God provides or things happen. I've kept a little notebook of those instances to remind me, and I especially read it in September, that God is for me, that three years ago and two years ago and last year, he provided just the right leaders and just the right groups at just the right time. 
And I can trust him again this fall that whatever is going to happen in the life of Bethany is not going to be from me. It's going to be from him. I have, I have reason to trust God as I, as I think about the unknowns of this fall. I, I was also thinking about a story. My, when my kids were little, we surprised them and took them to Disneyland. And at that time, you could get these little cameras that had like 24 shots. This is when it was on film. And so they each got a little camera with 24 shots for the, for the trip. My youngest son was about five, and he took six shots on the way to the airport and was busily taking all his shots in the airport, which his sister was admonishing him, we're going to Disneyland, don't waste your pictures at SeaTac. But he took all of his, by, by the time he got on the plane, he'd taken all of his pictures. And so if you were going to look at Daniel's photo album of our trip to Disneyland, <laughs> it wasn't much fun. There's not much good, you know, he didn't get to see, there's nothing in those snapshots. And I think about, we take snapshots. We learned at camp about the unreliable narrator. We each are an unreliable narrator of our story, and that's because we choose the snapshots that go into our album. We never can tell our whole story. We tell Five, at my age, you tell five stories from childhood, two from teenage, and, you know, five from your early 20s and 30s. Well, a whole lot more than that happened. It's, it's an unreliable picture. So I want you to think about what are the snapshots of God that you are hanging on to? Choosing to keep a strong memory bank of God's action in your life is a marker of being on the path of life. Finally, in chapter 30, Moses is going to point to the hope that God offers them and us when we fail. Verse 1, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, they will come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I commanded you today... Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. I love it that God tells them you're going to blow it. He knows they're going to blow it. He's not surprised that we're going to blow it. They are going to experience the curses. And God gives them good hope. There is a path back. Our failure never has the last words because it's not irrevocable in God's world. God offers exactly the same hope to the people of God through Moses as he did through Jesus in the Gospels, that God is compassionate that God longs for restoration. Then and now, God has provided a path of reconciliation. 1 John 1, 9, if we freely admit we've sinned, we find God utterly reliable and straightforward. He forgives our sins and makes us thoroughly clean from all that is evil. Paul writes to the Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing that's outside of us, that happens to us, can separate us from God. Nothing that's inside of us can separate us from God. No enemy of God can separate us from his love. Today I've set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. Choosing hope 
is a marker that we're choosing the path of life. And that means that there's nowhere you can go and nothing you can do that disqualifies you from the love and forgiveness of God. I have failed the law of love over and over and over. The longer that you walk with God, the more opportunity you have to fail that law of love. I have broken God's laws. I have broken God's heart. And over and over again, God has welcomed me back home. I look back to my early 20s, and I have loving parents, but I'm not sure in my 20s I had the idea that I could come home no matter what. I think I would have taken more risks if, that, if I had really had a sense that I could go home no matter what. It's a, it's a tremendous advantage for young adults to have parents who love and support them as they move out into the world and possibly fall or fail. It's one reason foster kids really struggle at that critical juncture in young adulthood because we can't afford to risk if we can't afford to fall or fail. And we can have that freedom as children of God. In the family of God, we can take risks because we have a good hope. Choosing the path of life is marked by living in the ongoing forgiveness and grace of God. This is a favorite little book of mine. If you haven't read it, it's called Sleeping with Bread, Holding What Gives You Life. And I'd encourage you and your families to read it. If, it's, if you're interested in pursuing this idea of really getting to know what gives you life, not just what gives everybody life, but what give, God made you particularly, and I think he wants you to get to know you. But the, the book begins with this story about kids during the Second World War. A lot of kids were orphaned. A lot of kids were starving, and some of those kids who were fortunate got put in refugee camps where they were safe and cared for and had food, but they found that these kids could not sleep at night. They were so fearful about waking up to find themselves again hungry and homeless, and nothing seemed to reassure them until someone struck this idea of giving each child a piece of bread to hold as they went to bed. Holding their bread these children could finally sleep in peace because if they would wake up, it would remind them, today I ate and I will eat again tomorrow. Sleeping with bread, what gives you life? These kids held on to life when they held on to a piece of bread. How do you hold on to life? How do you choose life? Are you living into being God's beloved child? Are you an apprentice to Jesus, the good map? Are you holding on to the provision of God in your past, taking snapshots that provide a memory that supports the next thing that you go through? Are you risking for God's kingdom because you know that falling and failing aren't fatal? Do you have a good hope? I saw this picture. On a, I took this picture on a hike this summer. It's a rock in a stream, and I was just amazed to see what's growing out of it. <laughs> it just reminds me how much life persists. Life persists. Even though you may feel today that your environment is less than hospitable, with Moses today, I'd encourage you, like nature does, choose life. I've given you each a handout today from Max Licato of some ways that we can choose life. And you're welcome to think about that during our communion time if you want. Perhaps there will be one of those that speaks to you of a place you're feeling stuck right now. 
Or perhaps God will put something else on your heart in terms of how you can choose life today. Jesus said in John 10.10, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That's That's the story. That's the story that we're coming to this table with this morning, that Jesus wanted us to have life and that he provided that by providing his life. As we come to his table this morning, we see that God has provided life in bread, the symbol of his life given and broken for us. And we see the cup that reminds us of the blood of Christ shed for each one of us for the forgiveness of our sins. This table belongs to the Lord, and he asked us to remember him, not as a denomination, not as a particular church, but as followers of Jesus Christ, you are welcome to this table to remember the Lord who gave you life, who took on the curse so that you could be free, who gives all that you need so that you can fall and fail and come back time and time again to his forgiveness. Let's give thanks for this table. God, we are graced by your love in so many ways, and we look at these symbols, Lord, and remember the cost that you paid in love for us. And we trust you, God, that you will go to any length to have us come home that you long to have us back in your family. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, for his life and his death and his resurrection that give us a good hope for the future. May we be your people strengthened, strengthened by taking this this cup and this, this bread in your name. Amen.